Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, October 3rd. Now our climate story of the week, which we're doing every Tuesday all this year on the show. Last week, both of the frontrunners in the 2024 presidential race headed to Detroit to garner the support of striking United Auto Workers. The union has been striking, as you know, against the big three automakers in the U.S. for a 40% pay increase and a four-day work week and a return to traditional pensions, among other things. President Joe Biden joined the UAW picket line on Tuesday last week, making him the first-ever sitting president to join a picket line. He backed their demands. Let's take a listen to a short excerpt. Guys, UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and before. Made a lot of sacrifices. Gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. But now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. Now, the UAW is also asking for job security as the auto industry under President Biden moves toward electric vehicles. There are concerns that EVs may need fewer workers. Ford's CEO estimated that it may be as much as 40% fewer workers. So Republicans have picked up on that point as an attack line uh, and a line of attack on President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which has put billions into clean energy alternatives and provided incentives for EV production and purchase. The day after Biden's visit, so that's Wednesday last week, Trump held a rally in Detroit at a non-union manufacturing plant, and he went after EVs, like a lot of the other Republicans hoping to be president did on the debate stage also last week. Take a listen to Trump. Every time Joe Biden and the UAW's political leadership talk about a fair transition to all electric cars, American labor will be under siege. It's not going to work for you. It can't work. So as the 2024 presidential race heats up, the UAW is the only union to not back Biden, according to CNN, only major union. The fears over the rise in EVs aren't helping, but they certainly haven't endorsed Trump either. And the head of the union, Sean Fain, uh, frequently says um, very negative things about Trump. Joining us now to break down what the rise of electric vehicles might mean for U.S. auto workers and the UAW strike is Robinson Meyer, founding executive editor of Heatmap, a new climate-focused media company. Robinson, welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for coming on again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Let me start here, Robinson. The Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden signed provides up to a $7,500 subsidy for each electric vehicle sold, according to the government website. Has the bill markedly accelerated the transition away from gas-powered vehicles so far, at least in terms of new car purchases? It, it definitely has. And I think we see that in two places. So in terms of new car purchases, as you said, um, actually, this month or last month, we just hit the moment where one million new EVs have sold in the U.S. in a year for the first time. Um, it's about between seven and eight percent. I mean, we're going to see how many new cars sell overall, about, let's say, 14 million new cars sell in the U.S. every year. And 
and now you know more than a million of them are going to be EVs. It's like seven eight percent of of new cars are going to be uh, EVs in the U.S. So that's the first place. That's an acceleration from last year. That's more than we saw last year. Um, the U.S. has kind of passed this tipping point that we've observed in other countries, which is once more than five percent of new cars are EVs, then we see EVs rapidly make a penetration. Um, but the second place where I think we've seen the acceleration even more markedly than the than the new car market is in construction of new factories, construction of new EV production facilities. So there's been $60 billion of investment in EV manufacturing and battery manufacturing across the U.S. since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And so that, that, go and ahead. that to me, yeah, that, that just stands out as I think where we're seeing the biggest acceleration because there was no guarantee that the U.S. was going to be a manufacturing powerhouse in EVs. Now it seems like we will be making enough EVs to absolutely meet domestic demand, if not be exporting many EVs as well. Well, according to the America First Policy Institute, which is a think tank founded just two years ago to support Donald Trump's public policy agenda, according to that think tank, one proposed rule from the Environmental Protection Agency alone would eliminate 117,000 auto worker jobs by forcing Americans to buy electric vehicles. I know nobody's being forced, but there are all these incentives um, being provided. And I guess that dovetails with Ford's CEO estimating that the rise of EVs might cut the auto workforce by 40%. So is there any reporting on your end to substantiate that? So I think what folks have been saying for a long, long time is that EVs will require less labor than um, gas cars. And that's, you know, the reason that they say that is because EVs just have many, many fewer moving parts. So a gas or diesel car tends to have like 2000 parts, moving parts in its drivetrain and its engine and axles. Uh, An EV has about 18. I mean, it varies from car to car, but it's like 15 to 20. and that obviously, you know, so many fewer moving parts, that's a lot simpler. Uh, that would seem to have less, uh, you know, significantly reduced labor needs. I would still flag two things about that. So the, the first is that there have been some more recent studies that say, well, actually, if you look at, if you include all the labor involved in making a battery, like, and, and not mining here, but assembling a battery, refining the metals for the battery, um, putting it together, moving it to a car, which absolutely we, sh- we should include. And the Inflation Reduction Act does kind of countenance as part of the EV supply chain. Um, then labor, re- you know, there might not be the same reduction in labor needs. The second thing is that um, manufacturing across the board is getting less labor intensive. And so as we move to, you know, newer technology kind of across the board, we would expect to see um, a reduction in just labor needs generally for whatever it is we're making. Um, That being said, I do think it is the case that for a long, long time, we've believed that EVs are going to be less labor intensive um, to make. And I think that that is an anxiety that is absolutely hanging over the UAW. Now, it would be very convenient if that anxiety didn't uh, turn out to be true. But I think that is absolutely hanging over the UAW strike. And to some degree, it does make sense for the union to kind of accumulate as much power and clout as it can now, because if it's negotiating over, you know, workforce reductions or, or streamlining, it wants to be in a place where it can uh, grab some of the winnings of that workforce reduction as well. 
Ken in New Rochelle, an EV owner. You're on WNYC with Robinson Meyer from Heatmap, the uh, climate-focused uh, news organization. Hi, Ken. Hi, Brian. Um, Mr. Meyer just stole my thunder, but I own two electric vehicles. I purchased them because of my interest in technology, not necessarily to save the world, but I ended up buying two vehicles that are so easy to drive. I have I can charge them at home. I rarely need to stop at charging stations unless I'm taking a long trip. And this is the wave of the future. And as just been stated, if we don't take a, a leading role in this in this sector, China will just eat our lunch because they're already gearing up to produce electric vehicles at a far greater rate than we are. They'll take over the European market. And as far as jobs go, I'm very sensitive to, to, to loss of jobs. But any technology advancement always causes a shift in jobs where jobs are created and jobs are lost. And we have to we have to be at the forefront of re-educating and re- retooling our, our workforce if we're going to take a, a lead in the world. Ken, thank you very much. I want you to follow up, Robinson, based on whatever reporting you have, um, on one thing that he said there, which is that if we don't take the lead in producing EVs, we're going to lose out to China. That's exactly the opposite of what all the Republican presidential hopefuls are saying, which is if we do transition to EVs, we're going to lose out to China because that's where many more of the batteries, at very least, are being made. What are the real economics of that, if you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I think America is in a very interesting position with regard to the EV transition and our competition with China. And I first want to say, I think the caller is is, is broadly exactly right, that basically the, the U.S. automakers writ large are in a position where, as I was just saying before he called, um, it was very good timing. Uh, the, the wolf at the door for them is China. You know, China is getting very, very close. Some of the Chinese EV automakers are getting very, very close to making a vehicle that will be cheaper both to purchase and to run um, and will be electric than a gas car. And once that happens, then it's just, well, EVs are the best deal overall. Why wouldn't you buy an EV? It's like it, 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 they're, they're cheaper and better. <laughs> um, and, and that is the Eventually. threat that, that EVs make that EV makers are. No, I mean, it would be both cheaper to buy and then to run. Right. So that would be the um, that's the threat that the, the big three are dealing with. I think America at large is in this very interesting position, because on the one hand, and, and we often don't talk about this and we don't talk about it in the context of the UAW because um, it's not a union company. But America does have what was up until at least last quarter, the world's largest EV maker. You know, Tesla, uh, an American company where a ton of production happens in America, is the was selling more EVs than any other company, at least up until last quarter. BYD, the main the biggest Chinese EV maker, may have now supplanted them. But America is actually leading in many aspects of EV production, where we're not leading and where we are going to need to develop our own technology, figure out what we can by working with the Chinese, is in some aspects of battery production. And that's because China over the past 20 years has developed an absolute dominance in aspects of battery production. And that's not only battery production in EVs, that's also battery production in your iPhone. I mean, all consumer electronic batteries that mineral supply chain and that production supply chain now runs through China. And so there are fine-tuned aspects of that process, particularly in the mid 
stream, what we would call the midstream of making a battery, where the anodes and cathodes, all the kind of hard chemical work happens, that right now is dominated by China. And I think, you know, it, it's a twofold thing here. On the one hand, there's a ton of money in the Inflation Reduction Act, and there's a ton of money and interest from the government and uh, the Department of Energy and its in-house bank and in lots of places to getting the U.S. to be competitive and to, you know, import some of that technology, learn what we can and try to leapfrog it as well. Um, so there's a lot of interest in having the U.S., you know, try to try to catch up to China there. On the other hand, that does mean that we're going to have to work with China to some degree for the next decade or so, so or do the most work with them that we can in order to learn what we can because they are the leader. And I think this it's a very unusual position for the U.S. to be in where we are both, you know, in some parts of automaking, in some parts of the EV supply chain, an absolute world leader. You know, nobody uh, we are the world leader in pickup truck manufacturing, for instance. There's tons of there's tons of aspects of the auto supply chain where the U.S. is globally dominant. There's a lot of other parts where we are very much in a catch up role. And that mix of like catching up, but also being ahead is actually quite unusual for kind of economic or industrial policy. And that's the that's the line we're going to have to walk over the next few years. And I think that's why you both see, you know, on the, on the one hand, Democrats talking up all the potential growth and economic transformation and, and jobs that could come from this. And on the other hand, Republicans saying, but you're going to have to work with China. Now, I will say writ large is where Republicans, I think, are wrong, is that this is not a choice that companies can make. They are going to have to make EVs eventually. And so that does mean for the next five years that we are going to have to work with China in many places. We're talking about the economics, the politics, and the climate impact of electric vehicles. All of this in the context of the UAW strike, uh, the two parties taking different positions on the UAW strike uh, with respect to the implications of electric vehicles. And now the climate concern, um, because there, there's a persistent concern, Robinson, I'm sure you're familiar with it, based on some top news media headlines about EVs even being as green as they're cracked up to be. On the one hand, electricity used to power them isn't necessarily clean. A lot still comes from coal and gas power plants just to make the electricity. Um, and then there's mining in addition that goes into, you know, getting the batteries, uh, the materials for the batteries. So how do you score electric vehicles on a climate scorecard anyway? Yeah, so I think what the most important thing to understand here about all of this is that, um, and, and the reason we care about internal combustion or gas cars versus electric cars in the first place is that, you know, at the end of the day, the more you drive a gas car, the more carbon will go in the atmosphere. And that is because of the simple technical physical fact that the way you are propelling the car is by splitting apart, uh, you know, fossil fuel molecules and releasing carbon dioxide out the back and, and making global warming worse. That is not the case for EVs. It is not, um, you know, there is the more you drive an EV, you are not necessarily making climate change worse. And the cleaner the grid that you plug that EV into, uh, the the less and less damage you're doing to the climate. And so there is going to be no way to get to a zero carbon energy system or a decarbonized energy system without having a much, much, much larger role for EVs. 
doesn't mean EVs are the answer to the whole transportation sector, but especially in the U.S., where so much of our geography is is stretched out over the land and we have such a car dependent system, they're going to be really, really, really important. Um, you know, you mentioned the power grid and the role that the, you know, well, if you plug your car, your EV into a dirty grid, what will that mean? And I think it's really important to distinguish between um, a coal grid and a and a, a gas grid or a gas coal or you know, the kind of mixed grid, let's say the mid-transition grid that you have in New York or that, you know, we have, um, I'm, I'm speaking to you from D.C., so that we, we have in D.C. Um, because, uh, you know, EVs kind of have two benefits in addition to just the fact that they run electricity so they don't necessarily emit uh, carbon dioxide. The first benefit of EVs is like they're much more efficient than gas cars. So gas car, it loses waste heat. It loses uh, energy when you brake. EVs obviously don't generate the same amount of waste heat and they recapture energy when you brake. Um, and what that means is that even a, a EV if you were to somehow run an EV on electricity generated from oil, uh, which is a little silly, but let's just do an apples to apples comparison, mm -hmm. would actually be much more efficient and release much less carbon dioxide than an EV than a gas car with a with a gas engine. Um, and once we talk about having a natural gas grid, then an EV, even if you had a one hundred percent natural gas grid, which we need to get rid of anyway, and which utilities are trying to get rid of which we're trying to make utilities get rid of to fight climate change, even if you had a 100% natural gas grid and you plugged your car into that, your EV into that, it would be way more efficient, way more, mm, way less mm -hmm. carbon intensive than a gas car. Where it gets starts to get interesting is on coal. So like if you look at Pittsburgh or Missouri, these are the two states at this point with the most coal intensive, some of the most coal intensive uh, power grid in the country. If you had a bolt there, you know, with a small GM made EV and you plugged it in, to that very coal intensive grid, um, you would emit more carbon than a Prius, but you would not emit more carbon than a Camry. Hmm. And so unless, you know, I think very few people who own EVs are comparing against a Prius. I think they're comparing against all other cars. And everywhere in the country, they will be more efficient. If they're comparing against a Prius, they better look to see if they have a very coal efficient heavy grid. But that's not a problem in New York. That's not a problem in the listing area. That's really a problem just in these last few places, mostly in the middle of the country that have a very, very uh, coal dependent grid. So this is a yeah. long answer, but hopefully that kind of got at some of the questions. Yeah, very clearly put. I think a lot of our listeners probably understand stood all those, you know, pieces of relativity that you have to take into account when you're doing math and trying to make these calculations. Of course, the next level would be if so many more people use mass transit to get around so much more and no kinds of individual vehicle, um, but comparing vehicle to vehicle, that's all very clear and I think busts some myths. Last question, a political question. Um, I mentioned earlier that the UAW obviously currently on strike, is the only um, union among, among a certain group of major unions that hasn't endorsed either Trump or Biden. And the fears, real or perceived, as I understand them, over the rise of EVs are reportedly keeping the union away from an early Biden endorsement. What, what do you think Biden's messaging to the UAW and other auto workers could be that's consistent with um, pro-climate messaging 
you have Trump over there and and other Republicans saying, um, uh, you know, climate policy is bad for you because it's going to cause all these complexities we've been talking about all segment. Yeah. So uh, this is the last question. I'll, I'll say that this is exactly the kind of uh, question and, and issue that we're very interested in covering at Heatmap, which, as you said, is a new climate-focused outlet. We're at heatmap.news for readers. We're a subscriber-supported outlet, so please come check us out. To your question, the UAW was really annoyed at Biden because of this large uh, loan that the DOE, the Department of Energy, I'm sorry, made to Ford to help them open a new battery plant. And I think the UAW felt like there weren't enough labor protections for UAW workers in that loan. Um, the loan's basically going to help Ford scale up what will be one of the country's largest battery plants in Kentucky very quickly. Um, and scale is really important in climate in, in, in all this stuff because that's it's the only way that U.S. companies are actually going to be able to compete with China. I think Biden's message is the best message he has is is the one that he's making, which is on the one hand um, to support the UAW, right, more than any previous president um, to show up at their strikes, to back their demands, to try to give them as much clout as possible as we head into this period and to convey how important they are to his administration and its broader economic goals. I think on the other hand, you know, he can help them by trying to unveil some policy that's going to put them in a better bargaining position. And we've already seen that a little bit. The DOE's also now rolled out a new grant program to help support $10 billion grant program or loan program to help support high quality auto working jobs. But I think the other thing that Biden, frankly, may not be in a great position to message, but that he's going to need other people to message is that this is not a choice for the big three, um, especially if they want to compete beyond this decade and in markets outside the United States that this transition is happening. It is being driven by forces outside of the U.S. and by forces that have as much to do with environmental policy as they don't. It's just also market economics, energy security reasons for, for EVs as well. Mm -hmm. And that transition is going to be coming um, for the auto industry as it exists today. And you know the companies and the, the unions have to kind of deal with it constructively um, or be in a position again where they're going to need more help from the government uh, in, in the future as they did in 2007. And that's our climate story of the week. We thank Robinson Meyer, founding executive editor of Heatmap, the new climate-focused media company. Robinson, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.